Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm Patrick Colley with Keystone Elder Law. At Keystone Elder Law, we aim to be the shield that protects the middle class from the costs and challenges of getting older. And usually what that means and what separates us from the -the run-of-the-mill estate planning attorney is attention to special needs. And now special needs is a, a term you've heard. It's a term that gets thrown around. It's a broad term. But when lawyers say special needs, it usually means that there's government rules involved. There are public benefits involved. And in our world at Keystone Elder Law, that means Social Security and Medicaid and so forth. And really... I mean, you or your spouse might be a special needs person at some point in your life. If you pass away with a spouse in a nursing home, that surviving spouse is a special needs person because there's a good chance that Medicaid is picking up the tab for very expensive care for that spouse. If you leave money or other property to any special needs person, you eliminate public benefits. So that's obviously something we're building into estate planning and building into crisis Medicaid planning for long-term care. If you come into Keystone Elder Law to discuss proactive estate planning, we're going to talk about the likelihood of needing care in the later years of life and ways to shield your family from that crushing expense. But we're also going to talk to you about your adult children and your any grandchildren you might have. What if one of them was born with a disability or developed a disability because of an accident? What if your child or grandchild has problems managing money or has lots of debt? These are really important considerations when you make legal plans to leave property to them. Because again, if you leave money to somebody with special needs, you have to make sure that it's done in a way that does not cause more harm than good. You can probably understand why elder law attorneys get high blood pressure when we hear someone say, I only need a simple will. Your estate plan and another legal planning can be as simple or as complex as your family is and as your finances might require. So special needs planning simply means asking more questions about the supports that a member of your family will need. I'm not going to go into all the details today of special needs trusts or ABLE accounts for a child uh, who has a disability There is some of that covered in a a workshop that I do called Middle Class Estate Planning and Asset Protection. If you go to keystoneelderlaw.com and use the workshops tab, you'll find that. You can get registered for one of those. And and a future episode might go into more details of that aspect of planning for a special needs child or grandchild. But instead, today I want to focus on another aspect of special needs law that undoubtedly affects children or grandchildren of many people who are listening to this show. I'm talking about the complex rules for special education, the individualized supports that must be provided to a student who needs them. And even if nobody in your family seems to fall into this definition, keep listening anyway because you probably have friends or neighbors who could benefit from knowing what we're going to talk about today. And my guest is Corey Winter, the owner of the Winter Law Firm. And I'll tell you, there was a time when clients would ask me for a referral to an attorney who looked out for students and families when it came to special education. And I'll tell you, I had no one locally to recommend. 
But Corey Winter changed that. He was doing very well as a partner at a prestigious law firm, and he decided to open the Winter Law Firm to fill a need that so many Central Pennsylvania families have. And I'll leave it to Corey to explain why. Corey, thank you for joining me on the Later in Life Planning Show. Thank you, Patrick. So happy to be here. So talk to me about how common this is. I mean, you you have a, a whole practice dedicated to helping students and, uh, and, and parents uh, navigating this issue. But it seems to me that there are probably a lot of children out there who need some sort of individualized support because in a special education program. Yeah, the, the number of children in Pennsylvania that need special education is larger than I think most people realize. And it's about one in five, maybe not quite one in five, but, but pretty close to one in five children in the K through 12 space need some sort of special education services. That can range uh, from anything from full-time um, attention in a specialized classroom to very itinerant support, uh, like perhaps 30 minutes of, of uh, speech therapy services, um, to just some modifications in the curriculum t- so that the uh, student can access it, uh, as well as their non-disabled peers. So it, it, there is a very big range in services offered um, and just because a, a student needs special education doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be uh, receiving that education in a specialized classroom for the entire school day. And, you know, I was preparing for this conversation and it just struck me how complicated this is because there are federal laws passed by Congress. There are federal regulations. And I, I'm guessing that the school districts all ha- are all lawyered up, you know, and so how does a parent uh, with a student who needs this kind of support, how do they go about navigating this on their own? I mean, is that how people generally try to do this? At the beginning, that that is true, that uh, a lot of parents will try to navigate uh, the special education context on their own, and which is challenging for all the reasons that you just mentioned. This is a very complex area of law. Um, and the districts not only have their own lawyers uh, on staff on speed dial, but they also have trained professionals that deal in special education all the time. And so parents that are dealing with school districts, um, they're doing so, well, parents on their own doing so um, on an unlevel playing field because they are likely not going to have the same sort of knowledge that a school district will possess through its attorneys and staff. And specifically regarding the federal law um, that's implicated, which is called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA as it's often referred to. That's the law that um, will be driving the conversation regarding special education services. Well, I'm glad you used the uh, the sort of analogy of the playing field because I, someone like you comes along and it's you know it's a whole different conversation with the other side. And this is kind of like people trying to navigate long-term care issues and the maze of Medicaid regulations. I just don't don't know how you can do that when the the stakes are so high. Uh, and and in this case, it's a child succeeding in in school or not. Um, so maybe give me. Uh, Some examples here. What are the types of conditions, or how how does a student become uh, part of this conversation? What what kind of diagnosis or what kind of condition is going on with them that they would enter into this IDEA conversation? 
Sure. Well, the condition can be anything, and it really doesn't matter what it's called. What is important is that whatever the the issue that the student is having is affecting their educational performance. And so what do I mean by that? Well, that obviously means grades and and their academic performance, but that's not the only component to school. And and that is what a lot of times people will fixate on are grades and and what are the test scores? What are the grades? How are they doing? And the district sometimes will fixate on grades, but that isn't the whole component. Because if you think about when kids go to school, what are they learning about? They're not just learning about how to do multiplication tables and geography and all of that. They're also learning how to interact with other kids, how to interact with adults, how to manage their emotions. And so that all plays a very big part into their educational performance. And so um, – no matter what the the issue is that's affecting the child, if it's affecting them to the point that they're not able to uh, access their education completely, then they are going to be entitled to special education services. Now, the federal law uh, that I just mentioned, IDEA, contains 13 different categories of what, what we call as identifications of disability. We do not use the term diagnosis because – The child can be medically diagnosed with something, but that doesn't automatically translate into uh, an identification for special education purposes. Instead, what the district has to do, and this is incumbent on the district, is to evaluate the child for any potential disability um, that they may have and may need special education services for. And the district has to do that either on their own, they specifically identify a child, or in many cases, with a parent saying, hey, I think my kid needs a little more help. Uh, I think they need to be evaluated. And and that evaluation is not an informal thing. It's a very formal process, has to be done within about 60 days. Um, and based on that evaluation, that will drive the special education services that the district and the parent agree to be provided. Let's get into that evaluation after we come back from a break. My guest today is Corey Winter with the Winter Law Firm. You can find him at winterlawpa.com or 717-470-4700. Keystone Elder Law is is happy to be a resource to you as well for other types of legal planning, which might be taking care of your own planning first and then planning how you will carefully uh, work a person with special needs or a disability into your plan, that also has to be navigated with great care. More on all of this when we come back in a bit. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. My guest today is Corey Winter of the Winter Law Firm, and we're talking about special education, something that is probably of great interest to many listeners because of their children or their grandchildren needing a special sort of a program in school. And before the break, Corey, you were talking about uh, that, that really this isn't as simple as a medical diagnosis. It's not as simple as just looking at grades and, and saying a student isn't performing the way they should. It's more complicated than that. And you, you were saying there's an evaluation process that the school district is obligated to perform. So tell, tell me more about this evaluation process. Sure. So the evaluation process is going to be just like everything else we talk about today. 
very individualized to the student. The, the, the student is being evaluated for the school district must evaluate the student for any potential disability that the, the child has. Um, so we don't want to go into this process with any sort of preconceived notions about, well, this is what they're diagnosed with. So this is the only disability they may have. And I want to be clear on something. We don't ignore any medical diagnoses, but that isn't the only thing to be considered. In fact, the medical diagnoses will show up in the evaluation report is, or should show up once identification is for their child out of the uh, evaluation process. And specifically, if they know that their child has been diagnosed with something, they're going to be exactly the same as a medical diagnosis. And the other part of that is the 13 categories under IDD, IDEA that a child can be diagnosed with don't necessarily map directly to a medical diagnosis. So, for example, a lot of times uh, parents will call me saying that their child has ADD or ADHD, um, which is not listed specifically under the IDEA. That is listed under the category of other health impairment. And when a parent will see other health impairment on their evaluation report for their child, they'll say, well, my gosh, this can't be correct. Um, well, in the legal context of IDEA, it is because that's where ADD and ADHD uh, reside in, under the IDEA. And that's got to be a lot of students right now. That just seems like that's a prevalent diagnosis, but but that's not the end of the story, and that's not that doesn't mean you automatically have a ticket into special education. It, it, exactly. And, and by the way, um, it's also important – that to, to, for parents to know that nothing happens in this process without their consent. In other words, at the end of the evaluation process, um, we will then move into the next context of special education, which is preparing an individualized education plan or IEP. Before that can even begin, the parent has to agree or disagree with what the evaluation report says. And so just as important as it is to get the identification right, it's also important not to over-identify. Um, and sometimes parents are concerned about that, that they are concerned about being their child being identifying uh, as having a speech or language impairment when the parent says, well, my child doesn't need that. I don't believe they have a speech or language impairment. Uh, I believe they have ADD or ADHD and they need help there. So part of this all goes into the mindset that I think a lot of parents don't have, but that it's very important. And that is that parents are an integral component of what's called an IEP team. And we haven't talked about IEPs yet, and I know we're going to, but an IEP team is made up of mostly district personnel, but parents as well. They're spectators. They are full participants. They have a right to participate and add their voice to the, to the mix. And so in addition to everything being individualized to the student, every step of the way, parents should be, at least according to the law, very much involved and have the ability to consent or not to consent on how to move forward. And, and really, you, you've touched on something that I guess as somebody who doesn't practice in this area, I'm a little, uh, I guess I wasn't expecting this. And that's that this is often the school district or the school it's school administrators who are suggesting that perhaps an evaluation should be done as opposed to the parent saying, 
I think my child needs more more help or more support, so please do an evaluation. I suppose it can be both, but but the, the way you're phrasing this is don't consent if you're the parent if until you agree with everything, and, and that, that assumes that it's the school bringing this process uh, forward. Correct, and, and the school districts do have an obligation under the federal law, it's called child find, where they have to basically search for children who may have a disability and to evaluate them. But evaluations cannot be done in, in the general context without a uh, consent from a parent. Um, there are some special um, ways a district can still conduct an evaluation, but 99% of the time we're looking at parental consent. Um, and most of the time parents want to consent because it's going to benefit their child. But the point of this is that parents are very much a participant in the school setting here in the in the special education context. And part of that, I think, is part of the mindset that, that parents, I help bring parents, is to understand that, um, and, and this can be a little bit hard to, for some people to accept, but they're dealing with the school district that may not necessarily have the best interests of their child at heart. Um, the school district is an, is a governmental entity, and and just because they're they're helping teach kids and and um, you know doesn't necessarily mean that to every single kid they're doing what's what's right. And so parents have to be able to speak up and to be able to uh, have an advocate to uh, get what they need for their child to succeed, regardless of the, their child's disability. So when we get the evaluation done, now there's going to be this individual education plan or IEP. Talk to me about that. What all goes into that? Because you've already set the table that this is everything's individualized and the name itself self suggests that. So after the evaluation of the child, what then is there any general format that a parent could expect? Yeah, there is generally a format, and and that format starts with okay, what is it that we what what is it about this child that we need to help uh, them with, and so that goes back to the evaluation and the identification, and much of that first half of an IEP is going to be um, almost verbatim what you see in evaluation report, and keep in mind this is going to be a document that's twenty thirty pages long. Um, but it's also going to contain both short-term and long-term goals. And those goals, again, it's going to depend on the, the specific child, where they are in the educational process, where their their intellect is, what, what their social skills are. And here, what's really important is for parents to understand, okay, how are we going to actually measure those goals? And how am I going to, as a parent, going to learn about that? And so... That comes into the reporting piece of this, meaning the parents are getting reports. And I will always tell parents, if we're just looking at quarterly reports, meaning uh, like marking periods, that's usually not going to be sufficient. Because for one thing, the last quarter, the report's going to come on the last day of school. Well, that's too late. So what can be done in the middle there to help advance things? Um, so that's one area to be to be looking at is the goals and, and the reporting. Separately, there's going to be a section on modifications. How is the school district going to modify the curriculum, the school day, assignments, et cetera, to help this child where they need the help? And again, that can range from anything like 
they're allowed to leave class five minutes early to go to lunch so that they don't because they have trouble waiting in the lunch line for some reason could result in uh, homework is going to be reduced by X percentage because of whatever support they need. They may have access to specialized computer software or hardware. It can be virtually anything. But this is a really key point, Patrick, and this is something that parents will call me about with frequency. And they'll say to me, Corey, the, the administration told me that they were going to do X and they're not doing X. And what I will always say back to them is, well, what does the IEP say? Because that is going to be the key. If it's not in writing, the school district doesn't have to do it. And, and that's a really important point for folks to take away. Yeah, and it's not just one school administrator who administrator who gets to make the decision. It's it's the IEP that is the governing document. Then, really good stuff from Corey Winter of the Winter Law Firm, WinterLawPA.com, seven one seven four seven zero forty seven hundred. More on this uh, discussion of special education programs because I'm sure it's of interest to many of you who have children or grandchildren who might need an extra level of support in their education to succeed. We'll be back in a moment. You are listening to the, the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. Our guest today is Corey Winter of the Winter Law Firm, talking about special education. Obviously, the special needs of your children and grandchildren are part of the many things that are on your mind uh, as in the later years of life, looking out for the next generation. All of our conversations on this show are about improving the life of your family, securing a better future, and Corey Winter is just sharing a wealth of information on this very specific context of of school and what the school must do for a child who uh, might need a different program of education. So before the break, Corey, you were talking about, uh, you know, th- th- there's this evaluation, then there's an individualized education uh, plan, and then some of the issues that come up. You know, maybe the school's saying we're we can't do this or that, or you know, I've I've read articles where uh, parents are hearing, well, we don't really have the funding to do this or that, and. And you're saying, look, all that matters is what's in the the plan, and because that's a very deliberative process, and you don't get a 20-page, 30-page document out of nowhere. I mean, there's a lot of planning for that particular student, uh, and then you have to stick to it. So tell me more about this. Like, What are some of the, the, the issues that come up once the IEP is in place? Uh, what are some of the common issues that you see with families? Sure. And, and, and let me touch on something that you said, Patrick, because I, I want to make sure people understand that um, what's required for the district to, or excuse me, what's required for the child to succeed in school has to be provided. Um, if it, So lack of funding or lack of resources is not an excuse. And, and where you will see this sometimes come up in, is a uh, one-to-one paraprofessional support where the, the child may need a one-to-one, a, a, an aid um, to be with the child for the entire school day. Well, guess what? That costs a lot of money. Um, and it is not an excuse, well, this is just too much. We don't have it in the budget. That That is not acceptable. However, um, sometimes 
IEP teams, specifically the administration, um, will essentially kind of get parents to agree to sign off on things like that, uh, not getting the support that their child needs, um, and the parents don't know any better. And so to that point, um, we were talking about an IEP earlier and what goes in it. The IEP doesn't start taking effect until the parent signs off. And so um, a parent, again, has a, has a role to play here. And so if they believe that a one-to-one prof- uh, paraprofessional would be helpful, then they should be advocating for that and getting that into the, the IEP itself. But then we get into, all right, when IEP has been established, services are being provided, um, and, and things go south. And, you know, as a, as a global sort of tip, if you will, I kind of alluded to this earlier about things being in writing. And one of the first things I will tell parents to do when they're interacting with administrators, specifically over the phone or in person, is after the fact, put it in writing. What was just discussed? What was agreed to? Um, Because what ends up happening is when there are disputes about what's actually being provided to a student or not being provided to a student – we get into these issues of what happened when, who knew what, when, how, et cetera, and it comes becomes very complicated very quickly. And so by putting things in writing, you help build a record that could be used later in a dispute resolution process if that's a situation where a parent needs to uh, initiate. So let's back up a bit because obviously this all assumes that the IEP is not etched in stone and that and that there are goals, but obviously you're going to measure how the student and the performance is matching up with those goals. So how often, if I can just sort of back up and ask, how often uh, is the IEP revisited? And you talked about this team of people that would include the parent and you know, the parent has to agree to whatever the conclusion is, but how often are they circling back looking at the results, and making adjustments? So it's going to be every two years formally, but it doesn't have to be every two years. In fact, it probably shouldn't be in terms of of, um, discussing progress and and asking for modifications if that needs to happen. And I should say that, that when we talk about parents being part of the IEP team, that can include a parent's attorney. Um, and in fact, sometimes that does make a difference. I've had parents tell me following IEP team meetings that, and these meetings, by the way, can sometimes stretch two, three, four hours that, that, oh my gosh, uh, the school district treated me completely differently in a good way because you, Corey, were there. And that's unfortunate, quite honestly. Um, well, it's unfortunate that getting the right support and education for your child is a legal problem, but it obviously is when when the, the rules are this complicated. It, that's right. And it goes back to, again, having an unlevel playing field um, where one parent is there on behalf of their child and there could be six, seven, eight, nine, ten administrators in this IEP team meeting. Uh, it can feel very lonely for someone when they have no one else to turn to. Yeah, and I, it's funny you mentioned that the, you know, when you're there and and everything is addressed appropriately, that it might stretch a couple hours or four hours even. Because I was reading an article uh, while preparing for this conversation where somebody was saying that the the school district will sometimes have a nasty habit of scheduling it at 7:45 a.m. right before school starts, and everybody's looking at the clock. 
but but it is you know the parent has an opportunity here to say no i i'm part of this team you need my consent and i want an adequate amount of time to address what needs to be addressed absolutely and and that the scheduling of of times like that um again is only can happen so far as a parent agrees to it so if a parent isn't available at 745, they shouldn't be forced to come in at 745. And and that's something that I help with, whether I attend the meeting or not, I can help parents, you know, with that correct language, because they need to be able to be a full participant in the, in the meeting. And if that means that, well, they have other obligations at home or, or wherever at 745 in the morning, or if it's on short notice, um, that is unacceptable and, and needs to be addressed. So you also mentioned uh, dispute resolution. So that was a question in the back of my mind. What if the, the parent just disagrees with the initial evaluation? What if the parent uh, disagrees with the individualized education plan or an adjustment to that plan or the assessment of the results? What, what's the process for expressing that disagreement? Yeah, so so big picture here, um, this because we have this very specialized law, um, unlike kind of what I would say other types of civil disagreements where you head right to court, you file a lawsuit. That doesn't happen here. Um, and of course, you can always have the option of trying to work things out directly with the school district. Um, but I will tell you that is not usually likely to happen. Um, and so what instead of filing a lawsuit in court, what what parents have to do is file what's called a due process complaint with the Office of Dispute Resolution. And this is a statewide office that is set up specifically to handle special education uh, matters. And what will happen in pretty short order is there will be a hearing uh, held in front of an impartial hearing officer. These are usually um, anywhere from, from a day to three days long. Um, and it essentially acts as if the hearing officer essentially acts as a judge, or at least an initial judge. And so if the parent prevails in that process, in that due process complaint um, scenario, they can receive uh, their attorney's fees back uh, because the IDEA wants to help parents uh, – advocate for their children. And so they will, uh, the IDEA includes attorney fees provision in that statute. So that's not a, that shouldn't be a cause for uh, a hesitation to challenge or stand up for your child Correct. because you can always have your attorney's fees paid. Correct. And, and, and before that hearing though, there is some interim, there are some interim steps. And, and one of those steps is going to be a forced either mediation session or resolution session where with the help of, again, this office for dispute resolution, the parties can try to work things out. And and that is part, again, you've heard me throughout our conversation, Patrick, mention that this is supposed to be a collaborative process to the extent it can be. And so the other thing to keep in mind here is time's ticking. And, you know, we're do, sometimes dealing with very young children that need assistance right away. Um, and so the longer this plays out, the further behind they can get, the further uh the more services they may need to to get later in in their educational process so um we really try to keep things moving as quickly as we can 
That makes a lot of sense. I mean, this the school year passes by quickly. I remember even if I was out on a sick day, it felt like I I could I was struggling to to catch up on homework and so forth. So we're talking with Corey Winter of the Winter Law Firm. That's winterlawpa.com, 717-470-4700. And we're talking about something that is probably of interest to many listeners who have children or grandchildren uh, who need a specialized education plan. We will come back in a moment and talk about this some more. Uh, You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, your host, Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, where we try to be the shield that protects the middle class from the costs and challenges of getting older. One of those challenges, of course, is the, the parent of a child or grandparent of a child who has special needs, uh, some sort of. Uh, need for extra support. And that's why I brought Corey Winter of the Winter Law Firm onto the show today uh, to talk about special education and all of the issues that that can come up there. Uh, Corey, before the break, you were talking about, you know, if if a dispute arises between the parent and the school district uh, along this whole process, that there's this administrative hearing, is does going to court ever come into the picture? Yes. And, and, where that happens is after the administrative hearing, either party or both parties sometimes can appeal to federal court. Um, and when that happens, the federal court will essentially review the record of the administrative hearing uh, officer. And, you know, I, Patrick, I'll, I'll tell you that I, I was recently um, attending an event with some federal judges and couple of them remarked that special education cases are among the very most complex that they see uh, up there with patent cases because of how complex these issues are factually and legally. That's saying um, something. Yeah. And, 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 why, and why that matters for our conversation is that it, it makes the hearing all the more important to make the issues as clear as possible for the hearing officer because you don't want a judge – who doesn't, frankly, deal with these issues a whole lot, to, to be looking at a record that's a little bit disorganized um, and then try to win there, because that's a much, much harder task. No, no doubt. So let's shift uh, gears a little bit and focus on some other issues uh, that, that might come up with a child who has uh, a disability or, or a special need, who has an individualized education plan, um, I'm thinking maybe some other issues would be what happens if they get into trouble because sometimes whatever their their uh, condition might be, uh, it might have a behavioral or an emotional uh, component to it. So, so what happens if a student just, let's say, gets in trouble in school for behavioral reasons? Are they off the hook because they have an IEP in place? Are they not off the hook? How does that work? That's a great question, something I'm asked about a lot. And and the short answer is uh, they're not off the hook. Um, but the school district does have some complex regulations around what they can actually do to discipline the child. Um, what the district has to do, uh, specifically if we're talking about suspensions accumulating over the course of a school year of, of 10 days or more, is the district needs to 
uh, determine whether there was uh, whether the behavior was a manifestation of the child's disability. In other words, whether the child's disability uh, is a cause or directly related to the um, behavior that that's being disciplined, and where there is um, a, a correlation there, or at least a, a direct relationship, the district needs to uh, um, take that into consideration in in imposing discipline, um, and specifically with an eye towards making sure that the school district is providing uh, the appropriate services and modifications to prevent that from happening. And the way the district needs to do that is by another type of evaluation called a functional behavioral assessment, or FBA. And what that does is um, takes a look at the child and and uh, the district prepares, again, another report um, of what is it that's kind of triggering the student here. And how can we support the student? And in that case, what has to happen is that the school district needs to provide a, a positive behavioral improvement plan, again, to be consented to by the parent, um, which is supposed to help put the child back on track in terms of the, their behavior. And again, this goes back to, to an earlier comment I made that education doesn't include just the academics, but how to interact with other kids and adults in a, in a um, setting. So in everything you just said assumes that there's some connection of the the problematic behavior with the the uh, disability. So, you know, someone with a learning disability who gets caught selling drugs in school is still going to face the music, probably expulsion for for doing that. uh, And none of that process comes into play. Exactly. Unless 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 there is an issue there where. Um, maybe the student didn't even realize what they were doing was wrong because they have some other disability that the school district should have evaluated in the first place. And you so, are one impressive advocate. So this, for, <laughs> for this these is all. Th- th- there's no. There's very few um, fixed answers in this context because of how individualized the the. Uh, assessment should be. Sure, sure, that makes sense. So let's talk about some other issues. I, I'm imagining, again, someone who might have uh, either a physical disability or an emotional disability, and they become the target of bullying. Does that come up? Do, do parents uh, approach you about that problem? Uh, uh, very often. And these are, you know, th- these are heartbreaking stories. I just had one um, before I, I came to speak with you this afternoon involving a child on on school provided transportation being bullied which guess what that's the school district's responsibility and so w- when bullying situations happen uh they need to be addressed and they need to be addressed immediately and this goes back to putting it in writing and the first thing that has to happen is parents need to inform the district that their child is being bullied because the district is under a federal obligation to prevent that from happening, specifically if the bullying is on the result or is due to a disability. If we're bullying somebody because they like the wrong football team, not that that's an excuse for bullying, but that's different from bullying someone because they maybe stutter. Um, And so in order to, uh, you know, again, you, you want to build this record so that if you need to uh, challenge the district in a formal way, you've got the the evidence to back it up. 
And so informing the district in writing and saying, hey, my kid's being bullied about this. We need to make this stop. We need to make sure my kid is safe. That is an important first step. A second step would be um, if it gets to the point where we need to include some modifications in my child's IEP to ensure that they are not around this bully um, or otherwise subject to bullying, again, for whatever reason, that's another step that can be taken. But the school district can't really do anything or otherwise be held accountable for anything if it doesn't know what's going on. And so, um, again, making that that notification, um, and you can do it by by phone, of course, but then putting it in writing um, to confirm that it happened is a really key first step because if that if something happens later, God forbid, um, subsequent bullying happens and, and the parent wants to take action against the school district, well, if the school district was never informed or otherwise should have known about the first instance, it's going to be very difficult to do anything about the second instance in terms of getting any kind of relief. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Corey, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because a lot of the time I'm either talking about legal planning that people are doing for themselves. And of course, uh, inevitably, I run into families who have a, a child with special needs or a disability, and that that's I, I cover that in the very first meeting with them, and we work out a plan. Um, because I, I, maybe you find this with the parents you deal with it. The one thing that keeps them up at night is is you know who's going to take care of my kid when I'm gone, and they're they worry about their their children a lot. So I think what you're providing here is. Um, provides some some clarity and provides hope because there is a process and with you there is an advocate uh, and it's one less thing for parents to have to worry about because you understand this whole maze of regulations. So my next question is how can people get in touch with you and and what does working with you look like? Well thank you Patrick and I've, again I've appreciated being here. Folks can get in contact with me through my website, winterlawpa.com, or by phone, 717-470-4700. In terms of working with me, you know, we start with the end goal of, of what can I do to improve you and your child's lives? Um, and and how do we, do we get there? And, and by the way, I know we've talked a lot about uh, the fact that sometimes these matters can be contentious with the school district. They don't have to be, and in some cases, they shouldn't be. And, and, and you know, advocacy doesn't have to be hammering the table and, and, and um, raising the temperature in the room. Um, we can work together based on the specific situation to approach whatever the problem is in a way that uh, focuses on you and your child to help uh, get the solution that, that you want and the education that your child deserves. Corey, this has been great. So much helpful information for parents, grandparents, anyone who knows a child who might need a little extra help in school. Of course, at Keystone Elder Law, we are always standing ready to help people and really with the approach that put your own oxygen mask on first uh, with having a power of attorney, having uh, basic fundamental estate planning, and then we'll work in how we can have protections in place for someone who might need a careful distribution of property but you can reach out to us at keystoneelderlaw.com. I hope you'll all join us next week for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show. I'm Patrick Cauley. You've been listening on News Radio WHP 580.